0: Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Thrilled that you're with us for Easter. It is on me today to give you a little, uh, you know, little, as much time as I can, you know, get out of you, uh, about what is Easter and why should you want it? What is Easter and why should you want it? To do that, I'm going to talk to you about some stuff from the scripture. So if you have a copy of the Bible, please turn or tap if you have apps we're okay with Bible apps, tap your way to 2nd John chapter 1. If you're using a paper Bible, be careful. It's only like one page, but you can get there if you use the table of contents. 2nd John chapter 1. And we're going to talk a little bit about what Easter is and why you should want it. Now, Easter takes place in the spring and it's very appropriate Easter is all about resurrection, the resurrection of the Christ. And as you're driving around in the spring, you get this beautiful sort of visual of that. Yesterday, I had an extra minute, and I drove up into Little Cottonwood Canyon. I didn't go very far, and then turned around and came back. But as you're going up through the roads leading up to the canyon, you're seeing all these trees blossoming and blooming again. And it's beautiful. Resurrection going up into the mountains, and you see in all this sort of just dead granite. But then there's deer jumping up the rocks, and it was beautiful, new life. We're going to talk today about true love as the core component of Easter. And I even saw that as I'm driving up through there. There were people taking pictures for prom. You shouldn't be laughing. That's true love, right? <laughs> oh, it's definitely... Love, it's definitely true. It's definitely pastel, right? Everybody was shining. It was very spring in its aspect, maybe. But true love is at the core of what spring really is. And so I want to get into that, and I want to show you, and I want to show you because it's a heartbeat of Christianity. It's what we live in. It's what we're all about. It's what Christianity is. And part of how I want to show you that is because the greeting that was used to begin the letters of the New Testament is somewhat repetitive. It's because they used the same one every time they never got tired of it. Our greeting is sort of just bland. Hello. I don't know what that means. It just means hello. It's just a thing I say, and if you say it back, we both feel less social anxiety because we said the thing we're supposed to say. But in the New Testament, they used a greeting that actually was... ...filled with a great deal of meaning. They would say, grace and peace. And that greeting begins so many of the epistles. I could read them to you, but I need to actually keep that time for something else. They start so many of these that you would just think that that's how the Christian community in the early times... ...actually just greeted one another. I want to show you from 2 John chapter 1. It says, in verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. More skilled pastors might be able to get through more of this more quickly. I'm just going to do what I can. There's so much here. It's saying that we really will receive grace mercy, and peace as fruit of true love. It even breaks it apart. It's not just love that I'm telling you is really true. And the more you have to tell me, the more I'm wondering. That's probably not true. No, it's breaking it apart to show you that it's not just true love. It's really in truth and love from the Father and from Jesus. These aren't just Ideas out in the air that you're supposed to take and create this sort of ideology around. They're actually from a person. Gifts from a person. And I want you to see it so you can understand what we mean by true love. Part of the reason I'm going to go to the Old Testament to make some of this case is because I want you to really hear me when I say true. In the Old Testament, there's a book called Isaiah. And Isaiah, in sort of biblical scholar circles, is sort of joked as the fifth gospel because there's so much in it about Jesus, even though it's written 700 years before Jesus. 700 years before Jesus, and yet there's so much in there about Jesus, so much so that we even talk about prophecies in Isaiah of Jesus because it's just you're reading about the guy just 700 years before and I know most people aren't excited about prophecy, or don't really think that it's possibly true. But I want to give you some truth. Here's what happened. There's the, the reason, part of the reason that we're going to use Isaiah is because of what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was a Bedouin shepherd in the 1940s who fell into a cave. It can be positive to be clumsy sometimes. Apparently, this is how things happen. The guy's walking, he falls into a cave. He looks over, and there are jars, and in the jars are ancient scrolls. He doesn't really know what he's dealing with. He's a Bedouin shepherd. He's not an ancient scholar, but he takes them to town. They make their way to somebody who does know what's going on, and they find out that these are scrolls that were the writings of a community in the desert near the Dead Sea. So they call them the Dead Sea Scrolls. Nobody said the archaeologists are creative, but that's what they call them, And the Dead Sea Scrolls are from a hundred years or more before the time of Christ. One of those scrolls contained a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. It's called the Great Isaiah Scroll. Again, you know, just descriptions. But that's what they call it, the Great Isaiah Scroll. And in the Great Isaiah Scroll is all of the book of Isaiah. And we have a physical copy of it a hundred years before the time of Christ. The book of Isaiah is written 700 years before, but we have a copy from 100 years before the time of Christ, so we can't monkey with this book. It is what it is, and what it is describes Christ in an unbelievable way. It says things like that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. We know that Christ was buried, briefly, Easter, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Doing pretty good. Rich man's tomb. That he wouldn't be desirable if you look at the life of christ he was born as a laborer he was a rustic he wasn't somebody who drew crowds because of his charisma his teaching was interesting but his crowds came as he did miracles you produce food people come donuts right you produce food you get a crowd you heal people and people notice And yet, when he would teach them what he really had to teach them, you can watch through Jesus' ministry, the crowds will drop again. And then they start to swell, and then they drop again. He doesn't have this beauty that draws people to him. He's a servant. That he was widely rejected. That did happen in Jesus' life. That he would be spat on and beaten. That Isaiah would write of the Lord's servant, that he would be spat on and beaten. That he would be a suffering servant. That he would be disfigured by his suffering. That he would be pierced for the sins of others. Talk about Jesus being disfigured. He appears after the resurrection before his disciples and he says, You don't believe? Put your fingers in the holes. When you're crucified, they nail you up there. And Jesus still had the holes. To make sure he was dead at one point, they shove a spear up into his side. And he was able to show Thomas, the apostle, that was doubting. You want to put your hand in the side? Here's the spear hole. He was disfigured. He died. He was killed. And yet again, as Isaiah prophesies, he was killed, but he sees through it. There's something that happens on the other side. Here's a little flavor of that from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely, written 700 years before the time of Christ, In these couple of chapters, there are incredible pain words used to describe Jesus. It says that he would experience anguish, have a knowledge of grief, that he would be despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, that he would be stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded, oppressed, judged, innocent, yet slaughtered like a lamb. And if you skip down to verse 11, it says... That he'll go through it and be satisfied. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And it continues, and it tells you what he sees that he's satisfied with. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, all of this is poetic language, and it's a little bit clunky. Lots of these words have multiple syllables. It's describing his anguish, his death, and his death on behalf of other people and other people's sin, and yet coming through it and being satisfied because of what he gets from that suffering. And I want to break parts of that apart so that we can see it a little clearer so that you can start to really understand this true love. Why did all that awful stuff have to happen to him? Well, it had to happen to him because you and I have broken God's law. Now, that sounds a little flat, and I can tell you don't understand what I'm saying because none of you are like sweating and trembling and freaking out and peeing on yourself a little bit. If you really knew, if you really knew the holiness of God, and I told you that you've been caught, that you have been caught breaking his law, you would feel those things. I want you to feel those things. Not all of them. There's bathrooms. But I'm saying we want you to understand because if you don't understand the cross, you can't get excited about the resurrection. You and I have broken God's law. Have you ever been pulled over? You know, you're driving. You're driving too fast. You're driving. You go through the red light and you see the red and blues behind you. How does that feel? Ooh. And you get pulled over and you know you're guilty. And you know that people driving by are gonna be looking to see you in your guilt. I do that. Do you? I try not to because it seems like a bad thing, but every time you're driving by you're like, so who was it? Ooh, that guy. Ooh, that guy. <laughs> oh that looks like a guy that would do you know, I don't know what you're supposed to collect from that information, but you see them and you know when you're getting pulled over that people are seeing you, oh, in your guilt and and they're going to give you a ticket, and it's bad. Not that bad, but it's bad. Turn up the volume. You ever been convicted of a felony? Yeah, smart. Don't say, like, yeah, (laughs) because then everybody kind of inches away. Yeah, okay, well, if you have, you know, they don't just turn on lights and pull you over for a minute. They kick down your door. They cuff you. They take you in. You stand before a judge and you're arraigned and the judge gives you what you did. They, they tell you what you're accused of doing. Imagine that fear from breaking a federal law. Well, do you see what I'm doing? The higher the court, the higher the guilt. The higher the law, the higher the fear, if you're rational. You haven't broken... A city or a state or even a federal law you've broken a heavenly law you've broken God's law what should you feel let's look at it another way maybe it's something a little easier to gonna get your head around have you been doing any spring cleaning yet it's hard You know, sometimes it rains or gets really windy or just snows, even though it's spring and your yard is starting to grow again. I've had to go out and start clipping on bushes and trying to get stuff kind of put back to what it should be. I don't know anything about roses, but the lady that lived in our house before us had several roses, and they're just as hard to, like, get out of there as they are to just sort of keep. So we try to just keep them, and I trim them way down. And it's awful because of all the stickers and stuff and the thorns. But if you've had to do that, what happens When you clip a branch from the bush. What happens to the branch? The bush keeps living. The bush keeps growing. The bush keeps putting out more branches that you've got to go in there and cut again. But what happens to the branch? No more roses. It dries out. It rots. It wilts. Maybe it goes from green to Yellow or brown. And what do you do with it? It's not good for anything else. You just you toss it away. The Bible says that the Lord is the ruler of the earth. It says in Psalm 24 that he is also the owner of the earth. That the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. It says another place in scripture that in him we live and move and have our being what happens if you get cut off from life death and you see it you see it all around you this is what's happening in humanity we're alive but we've cut ourselves off we have we have separated ourselves from life and so slowly we die It's a big deal that we've broken God's law. It's a big deal that we've separated ourselves from life. And yet, here's where Easter comes in. Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now again, Bible language, very, very beautiful. Connects to many themes throughout Scripture. So I'm not going to say that it's not helpful here. But maybe if you're new to the Bible, this is a little confusing. It's saying you are... (laughs) Separated, dead, because of the law breaking that you've done. And you, God has made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. How? By nailing it to the cross. Did you follow? Those are my two illustrations, that you're guilty. And he says, no, you're not. You're forgiven. That the record of debt that stood against you with its legal demands has been canceled. I said, you're dead. No, you're not. Through Christ, you can be made alive again. Grafting. Have you heard of that? So you take something and you put that branch into another tree and somehow the life from the tree comes into the branch and then, ho. Oh, oh, oh. you're made alive with him. How? By nailing it to the cross. Do you see where that mercy word comes in? You know, back to 2 John, he's talking about mercy. Do you, you see where that mercy word comes in? Mercy is something you deserve but don't get. It's a punishment. You deserve but don't get. You're standing before God as judge, and you're going to have to say, guilty, because you are guilty. And then he says, no punishment. Why? Because of that, because of that mercy, because of that love. Then we talk about grace, the mercy and grace. Grace, the grace that comes from the Lord in Isaiah 53 again, going to verse 12, it says, Therefore I will divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil of the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's saying there that God has earned everything that he's earned, Christ has earned through what he has done in his perfect righteousness, and his death and resurrection, is like spoil. And he's sharing it with you. God in his grace is giving his riches to you. If you go to the New Testament, it says in Philippians 4.19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's grace. Mercy is something you deserve that you don't get. Grace is something you don't deserve that you get. It's saying here that God's riches become yours. How? By being united with Him through Christ. It's a very real marriage. That this gift that you're given is not merely His riches. Because this grace, mercy, and peace that you're given from Him aren't things of themselves. They're things that are the product of your new relationship with Him. He's not giving you just these things. He's giving you Himself. This grace, we're talking about a marriage. Now, in a fairy tale, a very poor person marries a very wealthy person. And what happens to the wealth of the very wealthy person? It now becomes also the wealth of the very poor person. They don't have prenups in fairy tales. The the poor person gets the wealth of the rich person because they're married. And In a fairy tale, you're not ever marrying for the wealth, but it's the thing that happens at the end anyway. You would be pretty shallow to marry somebody just for their things. And that's what the Lord is doing. He's not just giving you his wealth. He's giving you himself. These are gifts from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, He's giving you Himself. They're coming from a person. This is this is gifts that you don't deserve. You see the mercy. I hope you see the grace, but you should also see the peace. Look again at 2 John 1:3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. From God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. In truth, and in love. If you've received this gift, you've been grafted into a new tree. If you received this gift, you've been redeemed by a person, and it's a person who wants to know you. He's he's bringing you into that relationship, and that relationship gives you peace. Why? Going back to Isaiah, and this time, chapter 26, it says, You keep God, you God, keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. What would it be like to really have perfect peace? Have you ever known perfect peace? If you try to imagine right now peace, I think what you're going to imagine is really distraction. When I imagine peace, first I think about the Corona commercial with the, the beer with the lime and the beach and the noise. There's not blasting music. Oh my gosh, that's not peace. Blasting music would you ever go to Vegas and it's just ba ba ba. No, no, no. Just the beach. Just the crashing way, just the one bird somewhere making that one noise, and you're just, just peace. Well, that's not peace. That's called a distraction. That's a vacation. Vacation's great as a distraction, but it's not peace. What a vacation is, you've got lots of problems. So you get an airplane, and you fly away from those problems, and you go to a place that's nice, and then a couple days in, you start getting nervous about credit card limits. So you fly back... <laughs> and now you don't have any money and you're back in your problems. That's not peace. That's distraction. I also think about peace at the end of a, just a beautiful meal. And oh, you have to like loosen the belt a little bit because ooh, you know, and you're full and you're satisfied. Peace? No. Distraction. Your problems are still there and they're bigger now that you've feasted like this. That's not peace. What he is talking about is peace. What he is talking about is a means of resolving your problems. That's what peace is. Peace is a a resolution, peace is when the war is over. And in this life, what we get through Christ is peace because we trust that the one who has come to make ultimate peace has begun that process. The champion has entered the field. The war will be won. So though we're in a veil of tears currently, we have peace knowing, we have this living hope, knowing what will be through Christ, who's brought for you peace. Peace is the resolution. And all the examples that I come to with this are a little nerdy, so follow me. But like when Dumbledore comes into the fight, you know that you won. That's not nerdy. There's billions of dollars. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) When Gandalf the White rides in on his horse, everything's going to be fine. That's when everybody's like, yeah, and they put their swords down because it's done. It's over. You win. How can winter stay when Aslan's on the move? And if all that is too nerdy for you, come on, you know, get into it. But also, (laughs) think of it differently. Imagine you're four. And you're for some reason down in the unfinished basement and you never go down there. So you probably are just in a nightmare right now. It's not even real life. It's just you're in a nightmare and you're four years old and you're in the unfinished basement. And it's just awful and scary. It's cold. There's little creaks and noises and you're afraid and you're not even sure what you're afraid of. Like if you knew it was a spider, you could stomp. But you're not even sure what you're afraid of. It's just this overwhelming, choking fear. And it's behind you. And every time you turn, it's somehow still behind you. And as you're freaking out, imagine that the lights click on. And your dad's voice says, What are you doing down here, buddy? Come on, come upstairs. And his big, warm hand grabs your cold, shaking hand. And he pulls you up. That's peace. That's Easter. You've broken his law. He's come to save you. You've chosen the dark. He's turned on the lights. You've walked away from him. He's put his hand down to grip yours. That's that's the peace. And it's not just this thing, this mantra that you tell yourself and eventually slowly kind of lose a little bit of your anxiety. It's a person that you know and by faith in these things that you believe to be true. Not just helpful, but true. You gain confidence that gives you this peace. You keep your mind stayed on him and you feel this perfect peace because you trust in him, because he's a rock. On which to stand. It is true love. Do you believe it? Do you have it? Have you experienced it? We say that Christ is God. That he put on flesh and lived this life of perfect obedience before God. And yet died our deserved death and yet by the power of god he couldn't be held down because of the perfectness of his life because of the power of the lord he's brought back to life and on easter sunday we celebrate this empty tomb that he has cracked through death itself and now made a way for you to enjoy him forever to be redeemed from the pit to experience his love. Psalm 103, talking about God's love, it says as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him, towards those who know him. Do you know him? And if you're here this morning because you're always here, you're, you're a Christian who comes to Hope Church and you know the Lord. Well, let me ask you, are you living in this? Have you given yourself to the lie that distraction is peace? And so you go about Christian duty because you're supposed to, but golly, you wish, and then eventually you're able to set it aside and do the things that really give you peace. What? You're missing it. You're buying into a lie. Enjoy. If you're just a seeker this morning, you're somebody who's not regularly here, thank you for coming. We always talk about guests, and really, we do regularly have guests, but, you know, mixed motives, who knows why you're here. I hope that you're here because you really are on purpose looking. I know that you're here because God's brought you here today. And I hope that you've heard something this morning that's enticed you, that's helped you to see your true problem and the unbelievable solution that God's made for you. If so... Let me read you one more thing from Isaiah. It says in Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. How do you buy without money? Come buy and eat without money. Why? It's just grace. He's just giving it to you. Come buy wine and milk, not crackers, Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Listen, just come back. Talk to the person who brought you. Search your heart. Did anything touch you this morning? How? What connected? Talk to somebody about it. Talk to me about it. My name's Ben. I don't know if I said at the beginning of the service. I would love to speak with you more about what will satisfy. Let's pray that you would seek it. Lord God and Heavenly Father, I ask you this morning to please teach us to seek you. Father, teach us to seek what is good and what will truly satisfy. Lord, on Easter, let us believe that you have risen, you have risen, And that rising from the grave, Lord, you've made a way for us to experience the mercy, the grace, and the peace that you have to give. Not on their own, Father, but in a relationship with you that unfolds until we're brought into glory with you forever. Please, Father, do the work that your Spirit alone can do and draw many to yourself. I pray these things in your Son's holy name. Amen.